our Old Testament passage today picks up in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Have you ever noticed in life that everybody remembers the bad things that somebody did, even though the bad things were an aberration and the consistency of a person's life was good? You walk up and ask the average person walking down the street today, what do you know about King David? Ah, Bathsheba, ha, 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 ha. But most scholars said that that was only about a three-month period of his life. Yeah, he messed up. He messed up good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. But it amazes me. Oh, that's all people want to remember. I looked at a young pastor one time, and I said, young man, Keep your zipper up. I said, because I've known some of the greatest pastors in the world. And in a moment of foolishness, one time, just one time, everything they've ever done was discredited. Young man, keep your zipper up. And if you need to, wear a chastity belt. And he looked at me and he was laughing and laughing and laughing at me. And I said, young man. And then I started naming all the great men I had known. Great pastors, great men of God, including King David. Brothers and sisters, thank God for forgiveness. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, now, but we do need to understand why, how, how this happened. How did David get into this foolishness, all right? And, and guys and women, I'm finding out that you got to tell the women this too. If you can understand how temptation comes into our life and stumbles us, if you can understand the path to sin, you know how to stay off the path. So let's understand David today. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. All right, so here's the first mistake. First, first wrong step. Now notice. Once you take a wrong step, you're headed in a wrong direction. Every failure starts with one wrong step. Every failure starts with one wrong decision. Let me write that down. Every failure starts with one wrong decision because it sets you on a different path. David sent Joab. In the time when kings go out to war, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch. Arose from his couch. He's sleeping. Afternoon nap. Now, now, brothers and sisters, he has plenty of wives. He doesn't need to go and have sex with somebody else. He arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and she was very beautiful. Here's the second wrong step. In the right place. at the wrong time. Now, there's nothing wrong with being on his roof deck. But, you know, when it's late in the afternoon, 
That's in culturally, that's when everybody would go out to take their baths before going to bed. They'd get the heat and the stink of the day and the work of the fields off of them. Okay, so this is when everybody's taking their bath. Now you have to remember, the ancient city of David was kind of built like this. All right, on along the side of a hill. David's castle was up here. And then everything else was down below. So David went up on his roof deck. He, he could see down below pretty quickly, okay? He, he's a peeping Tom. He's a peeping Tom. David sent and inquired about the woman. I mean, And they said, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? No, no, wait a minute, David. Uh, this is somebody's wife. This is the third wrong step. Ignore the warning. So they warned him. Okay, they warned him. The wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now, she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. Now notice she had been. So she has just finished. She's just finished her monthly. Most women, David thinks, this is safe. She's just finished her period. She's not going to get pregnant. So here's the fourth wrong step. Assume. Okay, he assumed she could not get pregnant because she just had finished her menstruation. All right, so we have four wrong steps. He's not out in the battlefield where he should be with all the rest of his men. Second wrong step, he's in the right place at the wrong time. He's up there. He knows what he's going to see. He's a peeping Tom. Third wrong step, he ignores the warning. This is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Fourth wrong step, he assumes. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived. And she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent Uriah the Hittite. And when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Job was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and he did not go down to his house. When they, then they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you come from a journey? Why did he not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, the ark, Israel, and Judah dwell in booths. And my lord Joab and the servants of the lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat? and drink, and lay with my, lie with my wife. As you live, as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. So Uriah was a righteous man. This was a good man. This was an honest, honorable man. So David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him and ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. <laughs> in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of the Lord, but he did not go down to his house. 
David's working hard to cover up his sin. Now, this is another truth that you're going to have to learn. Covering up a sin is harder than overcoming a sin. Let me say that again. Covering up a sin is harder than overcoming a sin. He had to work hard for a long time. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and set it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah at the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. <laughs> where is the fighting going to be the hardest? where you find the valiant men. Now, now, brothers and sisters, people gloss over this truth. But wherever you find the most courageous men, you will find the hardest battles. You find the greatest battles with these men. You don't find the greatest battles with the cowards. They're always hiding, trying to stay out of the fight. But with the valiant men, show me great, courageous men of God, and I will show you where the greatest battles are. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David, along with the people, fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting of the king, that if the king's anger rises and he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Tebez? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent him to tell. And the messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city. Then archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. And David said to the messenger, Thus you shall say to Joab, Don't let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Now the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, and she lamented over her husband. When the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done had displeased the Lord. Okay, you get away with it with people but you don't get away with it with God, okay? You don't get away with it with God. Now the Lord sent Nathan to David, and he came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the rich one and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. And it used to eat out of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. 
Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. So he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. Now notice, I anointed you. I delivered you. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? He said, David, God has done so much for you. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? David, the word teaches this is wrong. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Ten commandments. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. All right, consequences. David never had peace. The sword will never depart from your house. David never had peace because of what he did. See, there are things that we do that bring long-term permanent consequences into our lives. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. Okay, this is exactly, this was fulfilled by Absalom. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin and you shall not die. All right, so forgiven, but consequences. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. Now the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Now David therefore sought God on behalf of the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then could we say to him the child is dead? He may do himself some harm. But when David heard and saw that the servants were whispering together, David understood the child was dead. David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And he went into his own house. And when he asked, they set food before him and he ate. Now notice, worshipped. 
here's my question. When we sin and when we are forgiven and we still have to face the consequences of our sin, will we still worship like David? I mean, please, everything he did was wrong. Yes, I grant you. I, have, I Yes. But I also want you to see the heart of David in this. Once David was caught, he said, yes, that's right. And David fasted and prayed because he knew that God was good and his mercy endured forever. But he was willing to face the consequences for his actions and still worship God. Wow. If you were to teach that in, in the Christian world today, they'd look at you like you're crazy. Oh, grace takes away all the consequences. No, grace does not take away all the consequences. There are consequences for our sinful actions. But will we, will we still worship when we face the consequences? Now, there's one other thing I want you to remember. Bathsheba got pregnant again and bore a son. And his name was Solomon. And he became the successor to David. So yes, God is a God of grace, but God is also a God of justice, and there are consequences. Verse 21, Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, and when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? He knew that God was good. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David also understood death. That we go to the dead, but the dead don't come back to us. All right, let's open up our hearts and spend some more time in worship.
Our New Testament passage today picks up in John chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. Going to the crucifixion of our Savior. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe, royal, because he is a king. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So we have a crown of thorns. We have a purple robe. We have people, Hail, King of the Jews, but then striking him with their fists. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know I find no guilt in him. So a man who has no walk with God sees through the duplicity and deceit of these men, I find no guilt in him. Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priest and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to him, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die because he made himself the Son of God. No, he, he did not make himself the Son of God. The Father did. <laughs> when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters and again said to Jesus, Where are you from? Jesus gave him no answer. Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You have no authority over me at all, unless it has been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Ah, so there's greater sins and lesser sins. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. All right, now they use politics. We're going to go to Caesar. We're going to, we're going to tell everybody. We're going to tell Caesar that 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 you're not doing. You're not supporting him. Wow. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down at the judgment seat, at a place called the Stone Pavement, and in Aramaic, Gabaha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, "Behold, your king." And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. Wow. This is a rejection of God. This is, I mean, forgive me, the chief priest just stood there and showed they had no walk with God. We have no king but Caesar. God was their king. So these top religious leaders, in their hatred of Jesus, showed that they had no walk with God. So he delivered them over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus. And he went out bearing his own cross to a place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is Golgotha. There they crucified him with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Now, many scholars believe that this was one big fat olive tree because they're crucified on a tree, all right? 
many scholars that they don't believe in these this three cross thing okay they, they, they see that there's one big fat olive tree and Jesus is crucified here and then they're crucified on each side many scholars believe this because it does curse to see who hangs on a tree not he who hangs on a piece of furniture there they crucified him and with two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write King of the Jews, but rather, This man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four lots, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. This was a rich man's garment. You know, people always like to talk about how poor Jesus was. This tunic, seamless, this was a rich man's garment. One piece of thread and the entire garment was woven from it as one unified piece that would not come apart. So they said to one another, Let us not tear it, but cast lot for us to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Four women standing by the cross. Where were the men? They'd all run away in the garden that night. Sometimes the women have more courage than the men. Have you ever thought about that? You know, this new doctrine of complementarianism that, that is being taught in the world today where women must be subservient and men rule the women and, and, you know, it is so unbiblical. Have you ever just sat down and thought? I mean, you know, at, at, at the dedication of Jesus, Mary and Joseph did not bring Jesus to the high priest, or to the members of the Sanhedrin, to the elite. In all of that corruption, God had one little woman that ministered night and day in the temple courts by the name of Anna. And she was called a prophetess. They go all through the scripture. Who, who first saw Jesus raised from the dead? Who first carried the message of the resurrection? Women. Wow. Here at the cross, none of the men had the courage to be there, but mother, mother, sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, so we have John. Now, John is a different bird. John the Beloved, he's the one that leaned back on Jesus' chest at the Last Supper. He's also the one that didn't run away that went into Caiaphas' house and that even got Peter 
entrance, remember? John's a different bird. He sees the faithfulness. We call him John the Beloved. Maybe we should call him John the Faithful. When all the others ran, he followed. He even got Peter in. He's there at the cross. So he looks at John and he says to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his home. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus made sure that his mother was taken care of? And his mother was not entrusted to Peter. His mother was entrusted to John the Beloved, the one who stood the test, the one who did not flee in the garden, the one who followed Jesus to Caiaphas's house and even got Peter in, the one who stood there at the cross and the others can't be found. He's entrusting his mother to a man that he knows that will be faithful. Now, we don't have it recorded in Scripture, but church history tells us that in the ancient city of Ephesus, there is still a home that people visit. That was the home that Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived in. When the church was destroyed in Jerusalem, after the death of James, maybe even before the death of James, someplace around 63 to 66 to 67 AD, John, all of the center of Christianity, had moved from Israel to what was then called the Seven Churches of Asia, the Great Revival Center. And John and the mother of Mary finished their days in the city of Ephesus, John taking care of her to the very end. You know what? Jesus is pretty cool. All right, just a little bit more today for some wisdom. Proverbs 26, begin with verses 1 to 6. <laughs> like snow in summer or rain in harvest. So honor is not fitting for a fool. Now, here's a great lesson I have learned in life. Never show honor to a fool. It just doesn't fit. Some of the greatest mistakes I have made in my life were when I thought, you know, I know this guy's a fool, but maybe if I'm kind to him and I try to defer to him and I show some honor to him and help him through his insecurity, he'll be all right. Nope. Honor is not fitting for a fool. Like a sparrow in his flitting or a swallow in his flying, a curse that is causeless does not alight. <laughs> Let me read you the New Living. An undiscouraged, undeserved curse will not land on its victim. You know, there are many people who speak curses over my life. I don't deserve them. So I don't live in fear of them because they will not land on their intended victims. Guide a horse with a whip and a donkey with a bridle and a fool with a rod to his back. New Living Translation brings it out really cool. Well, that was New Living. A whip for a horse, a bridle for a donkey, and a rod for the back of fools. How do you guide a fool? How do you guide a fool? You guide a fool with threat of punishment. That's how you guide a fool. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you will be like him yourself. 
answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. That verse has always puzzled me. Answer not an answer. New living? Do not answer the foolish arguments of fools, or you will become as foolish as they are. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools, or they will become wise in their own estimation. So that doesn't clear it up at all. But let me just throw this thought at you. You can't spend your life in a Twitter war or a Facebook war and, and answering people because then you look just as you look just as bad as them. So you just learn to ignore them. But sometimes you do have to answer a fool. Sometimes you have to say, now, here is the reality. Here is here is the truth. Here is what's right. Because otherwise, you know what? They get wise in their own eyes. They think, well, nobody challenged me. Hmm, nobody challenged me, so I must be right. They don't answer, so I must be right. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to call them down a little bit, lest they get wise in their own eyes. Whoever sends a message by the hand of a fool cuts off his feet and drinks violence. Now notice, we keep hearing about fools, fool, fool, fool. Never send a message by a fool. It's like cutting off your feet. Now, if you cut off your feet, you still have legs. But it's very hard to make progress. It's very hard to move. You still have legs. You can wrap something up on the bottom of them. But you're not going to have the same mobility as you had feet. So please understand, when you send a message by the fool, by a, by a fool, you impede ability to move. And you drink violence. New Living says it's like drinking poison. And you kill yourself. <laughs> you impede your ability to move and you kill yourself. Learn, never send a message by a fool. Even if it's your son or your daughter, never send a message by a fool. All right, we're going to finish up there today. We'll see you tonight at 7 o'clock as we get back into these beautiful, beautiful truths on the three gifts of God, endurance, encouragement, and unity. We'll see you tonight at 7 o'clock.